Okay, we survived the midterm election, everyone. At least I think we did. Did we? It is not quite over yet. We are waiting for final results in some key races here in Colorado, but we are gathered on Wednesday <laughs> afternoon, about 2.30 in the afternoon, to talk about the big results and takeaways that we know so far and what we don't know so far. I'm Megan Verley. I'm usually off mic here for Purplish as your editor, but I'm jumping into a hosting chair today. Hello. And thanks, Megan, for not making this recording session any earlier in the day. Oh, goodness. Guys, I checked my Fitbit. It says I got four hours of sleep, and they all started after 4.30 in the morning. Ooh, that's rough. What about you? I went to bed at about 3.30, and then woke up at 6.30, and then took another brief nap in the morning, so... I should point out that I think you drove your kids to school in between those two things. That's true, yes. Lynn, what about you? Sleep? Uh, what's sleep? <laughs> well, I think that answers that question. Andy? I don't want to say. Why? Because you're going to hate me. Probably. I went to bed at 3.30, and I woke up, and I don't know what happened, but it was 11.30, so I got a completely normal, albeit delayed, night of sleep. <laughs> so when there's some breaking news later tonight, you'll be fine doing that. Then, Andy, right? yeah, call Andy. I should have never admitted this. So you listeners can tell we're a little punchy. Three of the four of us are extremely sleep deprived. We will try to make this entertaining for you. We will try not to go off the rails, but no promises. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for this season, the 2022 midterm elections. I'm Megan Verlee. I'm Caitlin Kim. I'm Andrew Kenny. I'm Benta Berkland. So guys, I'm very eager to hear your takeaways from election night. You were all out at the various party parties. Uh, you got to see this in real time. What's top of mind for you this morning? I, I think the thing I'm hearing everyone talk about, and it's certainly top of mind for me, is just how incredibly well Democrats did up and down the ticket in Colorado. Hickenlooper called it a wavelet. A wavelet? Yeah. A, a blue wavelet? A blue wavelet. I'm almost thinking of like the red wave came in and then turned around and went back out to sea. It's kind of like the national red wave got to Colorado and hit a blue wall is my visualization. Or or a red mirage. I mm. think maybe that's the way a red mirage that we thought was coming. And then, no, it turned out to really be blue. I mean, Lynn, to go back to what you were saying when we sat down right before the election, you were saying, I'm worried I'm missing something. I'm not finding the voters that would get Republicans over the finish line in Colorado. And it Seems like you weren't missing anything. I mean, I, I missed another thing that we'll get to in a second. <laughs> but um, yeah, like talking to voters, I wasn't finding these people that should be breaking for a day just sort of given the economic atmosphere that we're all currently living in. And I, I was wondering if it was me because, you know, on social media, which I know is just a little segment of what people are thinking. Not real life. Yeah. But like everyone's like, oh, momentum's building for O'Day. Momentum's building for O'Day. And I'm like, I'm not seeing that momentum build for O'Day on the ground. What am I missing? I wasn't I, missing anything. I can't help but think that moderate Republicans are so thrilled to have nominated Joe O'Day for Senate. I remember Representative Colin Larson standing up there at the victory party saying this is the best crop of candidates that we've ever had. And just like you, Caitlin, I talked to voter after voter, moderates, Republicans who should have been in that camp, who just weren't biting, who were so turned off by where the party's at in general, turned off by Trump, that they didn't care. They voted against the Republicans, no matter who was on the ticket. Fenda, you were with the Republicans on election night. Did they see this coming? 
I don't think so. No, I don't think they saw the results being as bad for the GOP as it turned out being. I think there was optimism that Republicans would make gains here. They knew it was still going to be a tough uphill battle for Joe O'Day to win. You know, they weren't banking on him winning, but they weren't anticipating how bad the margins were for all of the races with the state legislature losing seats when I think everyone expected them to gain some seats, not necessarily gain the majority in either chamber, but make inroads. I did see people at the watch party shocked at just how one-sided Not all of the results, because there's still some races we're waiting on, but generally, most of the results were very one-sided for Democrats. Yeah, I would have never expected. It's Wednesday afternoon now, and the only real consolation prizes that Republicans can wait for are Lauren Boebert might not lose, which is a shocking thing to have them hoping for. It was assumed that she would just roll to victory, and yet right now she trails by a couple thousand votes. We'll get more on that later. And... Otherwise, they're hoping maybe they didn't lose as many seats as it looks like they'll lose in the state legislature. Mm -hmm. Just basically, you know, holding out hope that they'll maintain something resembling the status quo. And the status quo was not good for them either. They were already out of power. Right. And in in the state legislature in one of the chambers, it was the fewest number of seats they had had in decades. That's before this election where now they're going to have even fewer I will say when I was at the Democratic watch party, you know, the mood there at the beginning was a little bit like cautious, right? They weren't really sure. They were, I think they, a lot of people were scared that this red wave would happen and they would lose seats. But over the course of that evening, they were getting giddy and happy and like the drinks were flowing. Everyone was like laughing and backslapping. It was euphoria, I think, for just how well Democrats did. And I think it was surprising for them as well. And maybe we'll get into this, but I wonder how much of it is the electorate is very happy with how Democrats are conducting business and their messaging, or what percentage of it is a pushback against some of the farther, more extreme elements of the Republican Party. Yeah, I think every election is this crystal ball we stare into and try to guess what it tells us about Colorado as a state, about Colorado voters. So as you guys here into the still possibly a little bit murky crystal ball of the the 2022 midterm. Where do you see Colorado right now? Well, here's what I'm thinking about is the reason I think that so many political observers, probably ourselves included, expected some kind of Republican recovery this year is that traditionally in the midterm, the pendulum swings back and the pendulum in 2018 and 2020 swung pretty far left in Colorado. And yet, if you look at the returns, the margins are improving. 2022 in some ways looks better for Democrats in Colorado than 2020 did. And so it's almost like that pendulum for now, like the rope just snapped and it's the ball is swinging even further left. And it makes me wonder if there's not a bigger change of foot where maybe that pendulum ain't coming back right in the same way. I would agree with you. I think, you know, talking to Senator Michael Bennett afterwards, he still insisted that Colorado is a purplish state. And I know, Megan, you don't want to change the title oh of this God, podcast. I oh, so I know. So much snark about the title of the but, podcast. Oh, are you going to change the name? Yeah. But I, I think these results show that Colorado has moved firmly into the blue camp. The fact that we're even talking about the fact that Lauren Boebert could lose in a district that is a plus nine Republican lead. Right. And part of it is her as a candidate in general, which, again, we will get to. But the fact that this can happen, I think it just shows how far Colorado has changed, even from 2014, from 2010. 
I mean, the first season of this podcast was 2018. It was a very wide open. It felt like a very wide open political year for the state because all the statewide races were up. And what ended up happening was this like blue avalanche, as it felt like on election night. We now have two elections since 2018, and each of them, I think, has been a chance to say, like, okay, was 2018 a fluke because Coloradans as a whole really don't like Donald Trump? And so when they got their first chance to show him Mm -hmm. how unhappy they were, they just rushed to the polls? Or has there been a realignment in the state? And I feel like this is the election where we say, yeah, there's been a realignment. Yeah, there's no apparent floor for the Republican Party at the rate things are going. One thing I I heard suggested is Colorado is looking like the anti-Florida in that Florida was considered a swing state and now looks solidly red. I've seen a certain number of Republicans on Twitter saying Colorado is California. It's like they're waving the white flag, like we're we're done. I think this is going to be a sea change for how people look at Colorado and Colorado politics moving forward. It's true. I think in upcoming elections, we are going to have to find a way to make races interesting and relevant to the audience without necessarily conveying that they're in doubt. It's a different way of covering it just When I was a newer reporter here, this was a very, very purple state. And even recently, we had a U.S. senator who's a Republican, a U.S. senator who's a Democrat. We had split legislative chambers multiple times. It's hard to believe how quickly, in a way, things have changed. Republicans are starting from zero at this point. And the dynamic looks even more different over the next couple of years. It'll be interesting to cover. I kind of wonder if they're starting at like negative 10 at this point. Uh, Possibly, yeah. Okay, guys, you've only mentioned it like a dozen times so far, so it feels like we have to talk about Lauren Boebert and what happened there. And I'm, I'm curious because I was on air on election night. I was watching the Secretary of State's results, and early on, Adam Frisch, the Democrat, started taking a lead. And it's like, oh, those are early results. They're always wonky. Like, don't talk on air about the, the unusual early results because they'll probably flip, and then you're giving people a bad impression. And then he just kept staying in the lead and kept staying in the lead. And at some point, I had to say to Ryan Warner, the host, we're going to have to talk about CO3 because something weird is happening. And I'm curious for you guys out in the world, was there a moment when you or the people around you started becoming aware that there might be an upset in the offing? You saw a lot of funny faces at the Democratic Party, like the results would flash on the screen and you see people like purse their lips and raise their eyebrows. Oh, and then check their phones. (laughs) (laughs) I think by the, the time those results were becoming clearer, even though we still don't know the result, but just the idea that Frisch was staying in the lead. A lot of Republicans weren't at the watch party anymore. We were at a hotel in Greenwood Village. It started to clear out as the night progressed. So I wasn't at that point looking at a lot of other Republicans. I did run into some Republicans who work in politics. The people I happened to run into weren't fans of Lauren Boebert. So even though they were really distressed about the statewide results for Republicans and that it was very bleak right now, they weren't going to be particularly upset if she lost. Which is the state of the party by the end of the night. It's like all you can take solace in is maybe some other Republican you don't like is losing. And we should say, so at this point, again, day after the election, results still coming in as we record. And she still may pull it out as the final votes, especially out of Mesa County, our county. But as it stands, way, way closer than I would have guessed. I think the two things to keep in mind if this race is still in doubt by the time you're listening to this podcast is that, A, the ballots are likely to get more 
Lauren Boebert friendly as counting goes on, because those will be the ones cast later and later on Election Day. And, and Benta, you've been telling us that there's this election conspiracy out there telling Republicans to vote on Election Day, even to vote after 3 p.m. on Election Day. So if that actually swayed people, you can expect more Republicans to be in that late last batch of ballots. Yeah, the red shift where red votes come in late as opposed to the blue shift in some previous years. And I guess one thing I'm curious about, Lynn, I know you've covered this race a lot, but as you pointed out earlier, this is you know, through redistricting, this seat became even more conservative. Bobert certainly had very high name recognition and profile. She had quite a bit of money in her campaign. Lots of money. So Lots of money. Just, I don't know, what are your thoughts as someone who's been in the district a lot and talked to people and covered this? So this goes back to my earlier fear of missing something. This is the race that I missed. And I think part of it is, I feel like we've been here before, right? Whether it was the primary or even her 2020 yes. race where people felt like, oh, she's beatable. We're going to win. And then she won pretty solidly in mm -hmm. both cases. She beat Diane Mitch Bush by, I believe, mm -hmm. six points, which I think was about the average as little less than what Tipton had done the last time, but still respectable. And she did that in 2020. Good year for Democrats. Right, exactly. And then she also beat Don Corum, Republican state senator from Montrose, fairly handedly. In the and primary. He, in the primary. And he had run as a, a nice moderate who was going to just make things normal again. Exactly. Work across the aisle, deliver for the district. So I've heard all these things about she, she could be in trouble because people either love her or they hate her in that district. And she has high unfavorables. I mean, you can go around and ask people. You'll find people who love her spunk and you'll find other people who find her an embarrassment. Right. So that has always been there. But in those other times, it has never shown up in the ballot box this closely. I still wonder. I, I still think it's her race to lose. But, yeah, I'm surprised. And I, I wonder if this is a warning sign for her. And I wonder if, let's say, she does win and it ends up being close, will she change her tone at all or how she deals with the district or maybe will talk to more local media or something? Uh, you're optimistic. I mean, it's I do possible. think you have a point, though. Like, you can change your strategy to the district as Lauren Boebert without ceasing to be Lauren Boebert. You would just potentially invest more in constituent services. Maybe you're toning down a little bit of the national attacks so that you're seen as doing more for your district. I think, though, that that is still in the future. Like, right now, it's the question of, like, what is the end game here? Because yeah. it's going to be so close that you're already talking about a part of the state that election conspiracy theorists have focused on in the past, thanks to Tina Peters in Mesa County. Yeah. They're going to get in on this. Mm -hmm. Mike Lindell's already talking about Colorado. Potentially, there's a, a lot of ugliness ahead of any final result here. Yeah. And, uh, and you'll also be seeing campaigns trying to get people to cure their ballots if they had made mistakes on them or spoiled them. It's going to be a dogfight likely over the next couple of days, at least. And one thing I wanted to add about why it's so close is that she has a huge national profile. She's done very well online. But as it turns out, you can have 20% of the country absolutely love you or however many people know about Lauren Boebert, and that doesn't translate to having 51% of your district love you. So it may not pay off electorally, at least in Colorado, to be polarized and extremely popular nationally. That may not make you popular in your district. Well, it was definitely the thing that I think all of us uh, ended up thinking about late on election night and still can't stop thinking about. What I find funny is that I fully expected that this episode would be spending a lot of time talking about the results in Congressional District 8. That was the race we were watching going into this election. Yes, that's the race between Democratic State House Representative Yudira Caraveo, she's a pediatrician, and then Republican State Senator Barbara Kirkmeyer, 
And I think because this district was a new congressional district for Colorado and drawn to be competitive and a toss-up, it got a lot of national attention. And it was kind of seen as a race that could be a barometer for just the mood nationally, politically. Which I think it was in that we were kind of expecting it would be a night that favored Kirkmeyer because it was an election that nationally was supposed to favor Republicans. You look nationally, it just kind of left us still in the stalemate that the nation's been in. And here, this race that that we thought would probably go more red because of the type of year, Caraveo has been leading in the returns, which fits more with the Colorado narrative of going bluer. I'm going to be honest. I think that most people expected this, or at least I expected this to be a 4-4 delegation. I expected Boebert to win. I expected Kirkmeyer to win. I think the fact for me that these two races are as close as they are, I think it does show that it's competitive. And I think whoever wins, I wonder if any candidate feels like they have a mandate. It definitely feels to me like in 2024, we're just going to see more national money and more fighting now, not just in Congressional District 8, but also in 3, no matter how that ends up. Democrats could have run the table if they had just gerrymandered a little bit more or not embraced this independent redistricting commission. So I'm curious. I mean, it's obviously too late for them to do anything about it now. I think you will see some criticism that says, well, we shouldn't have gone for this thing. But on the other hand, redistricting very popular, I think, with voters. Or you could have wound up in a situation like New York, where the court said it's gerrymandering and like totally did it themselves and made it just as bad for Democrats. Lynn, Benta came back with some tape for one of her features where Michael Bennett's talking to voters in the 8th Congressional District and he's like, you know, it's unfortunately we're really having to fight hard because it's such a closely divided district. Oh, but but that's not bad because it's really nice that we had this independent commission to draw it and we didn't gerrymander. And it was sort of this exactly what Andy's saying, this Democratic balancing act of, oh, we could have had a better map. But but yay, democracy. Right. I, I think a lot of Democrats and, and lawmakers in both parties, but especially Democrats, are happy that, you know, voters approved this independent redistricting process, but they just desperately wish other states also had this around the nation. Yeah, it's a little bit of disarmament. I want to wrap up with a conversation that I feel like we have had again and again and again over this year, but it's because it is one of the fundamental conversations happening in Colorado politics right now, which is where does the Republican Party go from here? As Andy, you said, they came out of the primary feeling like we've got the best possible guys to run in these races, and they got stomped. Yeah, and I was talking to Republicans about this before the election, where it looked like maybe they'd make a little bit of gain but not take the state Senate. And their idea was, well, we point to this as proof that we just need to keep organizing, keep going. But that argument doesn't ring true anymore because if you lose ground, and on top of that, some of the people leading that charge may lose election. Colin Larson, I mentioned earlier, who was cheerleading the moderate victories. He could be voted out of office. He's losing right now. So who's going to be left? And what's going to be left to try anything new? I mean, it's that thing where the last couple of elections have forced Republicans to give up on statewide office. This election, because it started really eating even further into their state legislative margins, Colin Larson, like you said, a representative, are they just going to run for city offices because they're nonpartisan and county commissioner? Where do they go to build back? And then you don't have the bench of future candidates. One person stood out to me, a voter that I talked to. Her name's Dana Vasquez. And she's a Democrat. She's been a Democrat for about 10 years. Prior to that, was a Republican. She 
was always a split ticket voter. So even when she became a Democrat, she was still backing Republicans. And for this election, she only voted for Democrats. She said it was because of what happened on January 6th. And she said she feels like Republicans have not stood up for democracy. She feels like they're traitors to the country. She's afraid of what more rights she may lose. And she just does not trust the Republican Party. Even some of the candidates down ballot that push back against some of that, she really didn't even care. It's just, you know what, they're part of the Republican Party and she wanted to send a message that this is not okay what's been happening. I think that uh, the Republican Party is a traitor to our democracy at this point. I can't take a chance that we're going to lose any more of our freedom. And I think Republicans are, are, are trying to get us into a Christian nation. I, I, I just can't take that chance. I really can't. I have talked to a very similar voter. His name is Dean Bagley, a Republican. He hadn't voted for a Democrat since Jimmy Carter when he was in college. And wow. he said he was uh, burned by that. But this year, he voted for both Jared Polis and Michael Bennett. And the way he described it, the door opened because he's disgusted with Republicans. He says they're not going to win statewide office until they completely reject Trump. But that also opened the door for him to look at Jared Polis in a different light and say, like, oh, well, let's see what he's done for the state. And now he's becoming more supportive of Democrats, not just rejecting Republicans. I have to say that what you're describing worries me, frankly, this idea of an entire party becoming too toxic to consider its candidates individually, because mm -hmm. if there's a battle going on for the soul of the Republican Party that is sort of embodied by Trump on the one hand and by candidates like Joe O'Day, who fought with Trump. On the other hand, if voters aren't willing to empower Joe O'Day-style Republicans, and I'm not saying that Joe O'Day should have been elected, I'm just saying that the fact that a lot of voters wouldn't even consider him, the Republican Party then has no one within it in positions of authority to push back and to try to reclaim its identity from Trump. I mean, it pushes the party into a more polarized corner. And I wonder if we will see that in Colorado. We had relatively moderate Republican statewide candidates this year, with sort of the exception of Heidi Ganahl. The 2024 candidates, are they going to be in that model? Or are the only people who have empowered and interested in running going to be much further from the right wing of the party? Right now, the party has to sort of have that soul searching. What are we? How big of a tent are we? Because if you think about uh -huh. who's the leaders of this party right now, you've got Lauren Boebert, right? Doug Lamborn, Ken Buck on the congressional level, right? The highest level of government that we've got a Colorado Republican. They're very conservative. Mm -hmm. Christy Burton Brown, like mm -hmm. she is also very conservative. She was tweeting about abortion and how the Colorado GOP is a pro-life party. The same time O'Day was trying to push this more moderate message, it was sort of at crosshairs. So I do think the GOP, the leaders of the party, are going to have to have this soul-searching moment. What are we going to be going forward, and how big of a tent are we going to be? I think that's true. But at the same time, the state Republican Party with Christy Burton-Brown, she's the first woman to lead the party. She did work with other Republican leaders to recruit a more diverse slate of candidates, people with different backgrounds and life experiences that they thought better reflected the community. And so I think they are trying to broaden the scope of what it means to be a Republican. Yeah, but to make that effort in a year where then most of those candidates, if not all of those candidates, lose, I worry if that will undercut the momentum in that direction. And w one more factor in that is that as Democrats gain even more power, 
the Republicans that they're pushing out of office are the suburban, more moderate Republicans, like a Colin Larson. And so for the next two years, you have even fewer of those moderate voices for Republicans in government. And probably the Republicans that Coloradans see in, in action will be even more conservative. And so it further defines the party as being to the right. And it makes it even tougher, maybe, to come back unless they have a real reset in uh, the 2024 elections. And to Megan's point, when a lot of the more moderate mainstream candidates did not succeed, Mm -hmm. that could embolden certainly Republicans we hear is like, you shouldn't have nominated that rhino. This is why we're losing because you're picking these candidates that aren't true Republicans. That's exactly what you've seen already. Yeah, I do kind of wonder if that's sort of where the, the party heads the next cycle, right? We try the moderate slate. Now we'll go for the purest, true conservative slate and see which one does better. We'll see. Well, I think we should leave that there. We will continue watching these races and seeing how they resolve and then trying to rest up maybe a little before the legislature and the Congress come back in January. Maybe duck in December. (sighs) That's it for this week's episode. And... Maybe for this election season of Purplish. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Megan Verlee with my colleagues Caitlin Kim, Benta Berkland, and Andrew Kenny. This episode was edited by me, Megan, and produced by Shane Rumsey. Thank you for listening. This is Purplish from CPR News.